with me to uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans the fourth chapter tonight. I read of a man in Scotland who was a church member. He was an officer in the church for over 50 years. All of his life he thought church membership and good works guaranteed him eternal life. And one day he was reading, came across the following revelation. It went like this, The gospel brings to us not a work to do, but a word to believe about a work that has been done. And suddenly the man said, I see it and I believe it. All of my life I've been working at the keyhole and at the same at all the time, the Lord, the door has been wide open. All of my 50 years of profession go for nothing, and I receive salvation simply through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. You know, many look at faith in God as an unnecessary option. Now, we live in a modern, high-tech age. We have so many advances in science and technology, and that it affects everyday life, everyday living. We have computers for just about everything. And although it's not an everyday occurrence, there is space travel. There's uh, the controlling of robots, even on Mars. Uh, We've had tremendous medical uh, advances with various organ transplants and cures for many diseases. uh, uh, Advances in the area of genetics. Uh, We can even know... If a baby is a boy or a girl and don't have to wait nine months to find out anymore. It reminds me, I still haven't heard from uh, Del Rey and Drew. They're expecting that baby today and she was working on it, I guess. Uh, But uh, we haven't heard yet. But uh, uh, it's it's amazing how we we can find these things out. We have advance in technology. And by the way, I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited about the uh, the idea of being a grandpa myself. I've, uh, uh, enjoyed that for a number of years now. And it's, 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 uh, it's always a blessing, uh, to, uh, have, uh, new grandchildren. We were kidding our oldest daughter about, uh, having another one. And I don't think she was interested in that. Uh, her daughter, her kids were, but, uh, she wasn't. Um, but, uh, it's also a blessing to, to know how we can, uh, increase our family size, uh, uh, within a few days with adoption and so forth these days. But, uh, you know, man seems to be looking for a time when everything will be subject to his control. You know, we have controls for everything. Uh, you know, anybody got an automatic starter to start your car? Yeah, uh-huh. You're going to start your car at the end of the service, and you're going to control that car from in here. You know, I was in... Uh, a, a place the other day where they were installing various uh, uh, radio, it was a radio shop, and uh, I think everybody that came in there was looking for a, a remote starter. He probably had sold two or three or four of them just in the time that I was in there. And uh, so everybody's got that uh, except me. But anyway, I'll go out and start the car for my wife any day. And what's, you know... We go control everything that we, uh, we have. We can use our remotes on our television, our VCRs, our, our uh, uh, technology. 
and man is trying to control. But what about man's moral character? What kinds of advances have been made in the hearts of men? A man cannot be trusted with nuclear weapons, let alone genetics. In spite of the social concept of advances today, humans are just as selfish, just as cruel as their ancestors. You know, on a daily basis, we read and we hear about irrational criminal acts that evidence of irresponsible conduct. How does man become right with God? Man has always possessed the tendency toward moral judgment, longing for beauty and passion for understanding the real meaning of life. Early records indicate that man's thought about God and eternity, and man has always asked three basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Or what happens to me after I die? You know, man will always need God and will never achieve true happiness or inner peace until he's right with God. And Paul has just finished nailing shut the lid on the coffin of the law. And he's told us in no uncertain terms that the law cannot save and that salvation comes only through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I believe this truth and we rejoice in it. And what a blessing it is to be able to deal with concepts like justification and redemption and propitiation. Now, we may not be able to spell them, but we can sure uh, uh, enjoy the, the blessing of them. The remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God. Unfortunately, not everyone believes these cardinal doctrines of the faith. Many people who read Paul's letter to the Romans would not accept these things as fact. And so Paul calls a witness to the stand as he continues to defend the message of salvation by grace through faith. Here he's going to call a witness, and that witness is none other than Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 4. This man is revered by over one half of the world's population even today. In our day, Abraham is held in high esteem by the Jews, even by the Muslims and by Christians. In Paul's day, people, many people, especially the Jews, considered Abraham almost worthy of their worship. And so if Paul was going to appeal to anyone to support his case, it would be Abraham. And since Paul felt led to use Abraham as an example of one who lived by faith, it's only appropriate we take some time to consider this as well. And so we're going to look at the faith of Abraham tonight. And I trust it will cause us to check our own faith. Be sure ours is, our salvation is based entirely upon faith because anything else or anything less is nothing, uh, is no salvation at all. So notice, first of all, the rumor of Abraham's faith. Verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. But you notice here the importance of Abraham. The importance of Abraham. In verse 1, and it's constructed in such a way that it really should be very easily uh, understood, but uh, sometimes I think it's it's uh, uh, 
Some t- people make it harder to understand than it really is. I don't think it's really that hard to understand. It's just the structure of the question that might be a little different than we, how we would ask the question today. So if we kind of rearrange the modifiers and the phrases to help us follow the thought and understand here, we could say, therefore, what shall we say that Abraham, our first father, has according to the flesh, that is, by natural human effort? What shall we say then? Or, therefore, what shall we say? Now this is in a reference to chapter 3, where Paul speaks about how the gospel excludes boasting and the, and the estab- and establishment of the law. And uh, in this chapter, both Abraham and David will confirm this idea. In other words, since man is a sinner, what did Abraham have to say about it? You see, the Jews held Abraham up as a premier example of a man who had been saved by his works. They believed he was the epitome of life lived right. They believed that God accepted and justified Abraham because he earned it. Notice the phrase there, uh, Abraham our father. Really saying, Abraham our first father. This tells us that the nation of Israel began with Abraham. It tells us of the importance attached to Abraham. And I want you to notice then also, uh, the next phrase, as pertaining to the flesh. Paul's asking, what has he found according to the flesh? Abraham has found that Abraham's works according to the flesh did not produce boasting, but produced shame and confusion. <clears throat> that was Abraham's works. He had nothing really to boast of. And so the importance of Abraham is seen first. Secondly, we see the accomplishment of Abraham. Paul tells us here that if this is true, that is, if there is a note of truth to the rumor that Abraham had been made right by his works, that Abraham was right, had a right to brag, to, to, to boast. He could stick a, his chest out just a little and say, hey, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. And if this were true, then we would have to respect that, hold Abraham up as a perfect example of righteousness. In other words, he would deserve all the acclaim that we could give him. You know, the same is true in our day. There are denominations all around us this evening who, in one way or another, claim to be saved by works. Uh, Be it the Catholic who thinks if he goes to Mass or the seven-day Adventist who thinks that he can refrain from eating certain foods, or a certain person in the Church of Christ who thinks that baptism is a requirement for salvation, or maybe it's that person who believes that he's saved by faith, but that he has to keep him saved, keep himself saved by good works. Now, all these people have a right to brag about their righteousness if they earned it for themselves. Sadly, these people are wrong, though. When it comes to faith, God's way, there will be no boasting in the flesh. And what we have done, there will only be the boasting in Christ and what He's done for us. Remember last week we talked about the two chairs, the chair of do and the chair of done. 
Religion today is the chair of doing. The chair of done is what Christ has done and accomplished for us. Then thirdly, we notice the justification of Abraham. Notice the last phrase of this verse here in verse 2. But not before God. But not before God. What Paul is saying That even if this were true, and Abraham were somehow justified by his works, God would not be impressed. You see, we're conditioned to perform from time, uh, from the time we're small children. We learn that good deeds and good performance provides rewards, and they give us a sense of accomplishment and self-assurance. Now, I believe in teaching our children right and wrong. You know, uh, we were spent a couple of days with our uh, kids with uh, four four boys, and uh, that's the house of no. <laughs> the house of no. You know, and that's what you have. You use that word a lot with little children, don't you? No, don't touch that. No, don't do that. No. No, you can't watch that. No, you can't do this. No, you can't go play outside. well I believe in teaching them right from wrong and we do teach them that but you know uh, they have to learn at some point that salvation is not going to be by what they do or don't do it's going to be by faith the justification of Abraham We learn that good deeds and good performance provides rewards, while the good things we do may prosper us in the flesh and the eyes of men. It will do nothing for us with the Lord. Why? Because God does not look on the outside. God looks at your heart. No matter what we do in this world, we're always judged by what we did last. You know, you ask any football coach, and he'll tell you that no player is any better than his last game. That's the way it uh, works. That's why works won't work. Works won't work because works won't last. You have to do more and more, and eventually you come to the to the uh, an end. And and what uh, what can you do when you can't do anymore? If I'm saved by my good works, and I have to keep doing good works and even better works every single minute of my life. If I don't, then I'm doomed. That, my friends, is a pressure no human has can live under. Now, excuse me for this example. I'm not lifting this man up as a hero, but you remember Muhammad Ali? Some of us knew him as Cassius Clay. You think about him for a moment. He was considered by many to be the greatest boxer who ever went into the ring. He'll always be remembered for his great victories. However, he cannot do those things tonight. He lives in a body that is ravished by the effects of Parkinson's disease. He simply cannot do the things he used to do. Does that change the fact that he was a great boxer? Well, I don't think so. The reality is that he does not, what he does does not hinge on what he is today. His worth has nothing to do with the fact that Remember how he could say he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. But that tonight, 
is not what he's doing. He's shaking like a leaf and even has trouble speaking coherent, coherent sentences. People will always remember him as a great fighter, but he, if he crawled back into the ring tonight and tried to fight, he could be easily defeated. He's uh, washed up as a boxer. He doesn't have a thing to prove to humanity tonight. His fame doesn't depend on what he can do. It's all about who he is. And that's a lesson I think we need to learn as Christians. It's not about what we can do, but who we are. God is not impressed tonight with your works or with my works. All uh, uh, that touches God is our faith. Faith is the only thing that will save the human soul. So we have the rumor of Abraham's faith. Secondly, we have the reality of Abraham's faith in verses 3 through 5. Notice verse 3. And what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice First of all, Abraham's account. Paul tells us the real basis of Abraham's salvation is not his works, but is his faith. He believed God, and God saved him. When Abraham was an 85-year-old man, a childless man, by the way, that the Lord came to him and told him he was going to have children. In fact, God told him, that his descendants would eventually outnumber the stars that Abraham could see overhead. Now, if that sounds a little crazy, here's something either crazier. Abraham believed him. The Bible tells us that his faith, this faith in the Word of God, has considered was considered the basis for Abraham's righteousness. In other words, because Abraham believed God, God saved his soul. Now, I want you to notice in this, this uh, uh, section here, the word counted. It was counted unto him for righteousness. That means uh, it was credited to one's account and to treat accordingly. Let me illustrate. If you went to the bank and tried to write a check on an overdrawn account, they would treat you accordingly. However, if you went to the bank and you deposited a million dollars in your account and then wrote a check, they would credit your account and treat you like a millionaire. You see the spiritual side of this truth. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, God credits our account in the bank of heaven with the righteousness of Christ and then he treats us like he would treat Jesus. And yet, if we do not open our account in heaven with a deposit of faith, and we try to secure God's favor by substituting our own righteousness, then we'll be treated just like we deserve to be treated, and we'll be sent to hell. So we see Abraham's account. Secondly, we see Abraham's work. Now the whole point Paul is trying to make is summed up in these Verses 4 and 5 here. He tells us that if we are saved by good works, then God is just paying off his debt to man when when he saves a sinner. 
Imagine going to work one week and on payday, the boss comes by and hands you a check and says, here's your gift. How would you feel? You say, gift? Gift nothing. I earned that check by my work. Well, the same is true of salvation. If I'm saved because I've earned it, then I can brag about my goodness. If that is the case, then you're not saved by grace, but because God owes it to you for what you've done. That's a false view of salvation. You can count on the fact that God will never be indebted to any one of us. Now, verse 5 goes on to tell us that even the ungodly person who believes God by faith will be saved. Never has been or ever will be about works. It's about faith. If there's anything attached to your salvation besides Jesus Christ, then you need to be saved tonight by, uh, by faith. It's all about faith. Now, what, what blesses me as I read this is the fact that I don't have to get good before I can come to God. You notice there in verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that is just that justifieth the ungodly. He didn't have to clean up his life first and then get, uh, you know, get saved. God isn't saying, uh, sitting in heaven saying, you know, I wish that boy or that girl would get a life, uh, their life on track and start living for me. I'd sure like to save them. No. If that were the case, we'd all go to hell. And I'm glad that Jesus told us to come to him and when he called us to come as we are. Now, you know, people, I don't see if I can do this tonight. I've got Kleenex up here. I'm not going to use it what it's normally used for. But I'm going to put, this isn't magic, Idra, okay? It's an illustration. Uh, My right hand under the cloth represents Jesus in his righteousness. I don't know if this is going to be big enough, but i got big hands. But my left hand is uncovered. You can see that, right? This represents me in all my sins. And this is how God sees me before I'm saved, as a sinner. And yet when I place my faith in Jesus, I place my life in His hands. And then I'm no longer seen. My, My sins are not seen. All that's seen is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, many people are close, but they're still so far away from understanding the truth of this matter. I uh, read a little story uh, that I came across recently. It was a fascinating interview uh, entitled, A Century with God. And here are a few of the excerpts from that article. Age 110, Charlie Shibanik of Richmond, California, was the oldest Catholic in the United States. But he had a busier prayer life that most Catholics half his age would have. During the day, he said the rosaries on the ancient, uh, in an ancient set of beads. He liked Our Lady. He liked St. David, and he prayed to him. When asked who St. David was, he said, Well, I really don't know. I've just been praying to him for years. 
And his theology was very simple and to the point. The Catholic religion is the only religion worth a hill of beans, he said. Use some very high uh, theology words there. And I'm not offended in the least by that statement. In fact, I rather like it because I tend to like people who know what they believe. I think Charlie uh, and I would get along. But he's trying to get in shape for what the final meeting would be with his creator. He says, it's taken me 106 years and I finally stopped using profanity. And he said, I've never been drunk, drunk in my life, not once. Now, we're all born under the curse of Adam and Eve uh, that brought on us, and so we have to work hard to go to heaven, he said. That's the only purpose of our life, not fame or fortune. I'm living in the hope that when I die, I'll go to heaven according to the laws of God. As I read that story, I began to think, you know, quite a guy, Charlie Shabanik. Obviously a crusty old bird who, who, would, who could live to 110 years old, but he clearly had a sense of humor, knows he won't live forever. He's trying to get ready for the Lord. But why do we mention him in the context of this passage here? Because he represents so many people in the world today. They're trying to get ready for, for God. They're working at it. They're saying their, uh, their prayers and they're, uh, uh, they're doing their, their religious uh, things. He said, he said this, We're all born under the curse that Adam and Eve brought on us. That's true. And all Christians would have to agree with him on that. But the next thing, he's totally wrong. He said, we all have to work hard to go to heaven. That's absolutely wrong. And that's what Romans chapter 4 is arguing against. You don't have to work hard to go to heaven. His theology was close and yet far from the truth. He's obviously sincere when it comes to salvation, but he was sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not enough. So we have the rumor of Abraham's faith, the importance, the accomplishment, the justification of Abraham, the reality of Abraham's faith, his, his account and his work. Notice the results of Abraham's faith in verses 6 through 8. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And we have the example here of David. David lived under the law. Abraham did not. Abraham did not live under the law because no law had been given during his lifetime. The Mosaic system didn't come along until 400 years later. Yet David lived under the law, and David could never be saved under the law. And so... David described the blessedness that God reckons righteousness without works because David had no works. The works that he had were evil. and Therefore, righteousness be, must be totally apart and separate from the works. Righteousness must come on an entirely different principle because Abraham reacted in faith to the promises of God. There were certain results in his life that are worthy of our notice. Paul is going to illustrate these principles 
And he's mentioned, he's just mentioned regarding Abraham's faith, but he's going to use David as an illustration. Notice the quotation here that he gives of David. It's actually a quotation from his prayer in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom this Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. These verses are an outcome of David's great sin. In these verses, Paul reveals three great truths that become ours when we trust Jesus for salvation. First of all, sins are forgiven. He says, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. I trust you're one of those blessed ones today. I'm glad to be in that company, in that number, blessed expresses the glorious, wonderful joy of sins forgiven. It's the greatest statement of all, and David knew this by experience. The word iniquities talks about lawlessness. David broke the law, and he did it deliberately. Now, he didn't do it ignorantly. He he knew what he did, but he was still forgiven. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Refers to a definite, complete act of remission, Hard-boiled judge may, under certain circumstances, remit sins. But this speaks of the tenderness of God by taking the sinner into his arms of love and receiving him with affection. And the word forgiven means sent away. In a very real sense, when we receive Christ as our Savior, our sins are forever physically removed. It says in Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah thirty eight seventeen. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast love in my soul, delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Colossians two thirteen and 14. And you being dead in your sins, and the circumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the, tra- the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the, his cross. Many more references could be quoted. But our sins have been sent away. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my life is free and in my heart's a song. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God. My sins are G-O-N-E gone. Our sins are forgiven. Secondly, our sins are covered. The phrase, whose sins are covered, means covered so completely they can never be uncovered. The blood of Jesus is so powerful it covers all sins. Past, present, and future have been covered by faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's why I believe I'm saved forever. If my future sins send me to hell, then I'm not really saved. It's either all or nothing. My sins are covered. And then thirdly, sins are not counted against you. In verse 8, he uses the word impute. The word impute means to credit to one's account and to treat accordingly. Oh, we heard that before, haven't we? 
to credit to one's account and treat accordingly. It's the same word that's used back in verse 5. It means that once you trust Christ for salvation, your sins are never credited to your account because they have already been credited to his account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, joyful is the man whose sin the Lord will not put to his account. David was a great sinner, but God put away his sin as Nathan informed him. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Does that mean that there are not consequences for sin? No. David had consequences. He was chastened. Four of his children lost their lives. Many other people were affected by his sin. Sin always has consequences. But thank God they're forgiven. They're covered. They're not counted against us. And so as we think about what we've learned this evening again about salvation, we need to try to bring it all together for a moment. Imagine you owed a bank $1 million and you had agreed to repay that debt at a rate of $10 a week. Then one week you went to the bank and handed over your $10 and the teller checked your account and informed you that Warren Buffett had been there and he paid your account in full and deposited another $1 million into your account. Not only are you not in debt any longer, but you also have all the riches that you could ever imagine to have. I know that's kind of a far-fetched illustration. Again, I'm not putting this man up as a hero either, but he's a rich man. He could do that, and it wouldn't even affect him. (laughs) He could do that for all of us, probably. But you know what? This is what Jesus did in salvation. He paid our debt, and then he accredited to our account his righteousness, so now we are the sons of God and are right in the eyes of the Father in heaven. Now, let me make one final statement here. The emphasis of these verses is faith and works are mutually exclusive. Works are fine, but they're ne- they never save our souls. It's faith and faith alone that makes us right with God. Anytime we try to mingle those two together, we create an abomination and our works always negate our faith. And so as we reach the end of these thoughts in this study tonight, which is it for you, faith or works? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Someone might object and say, I, maybe I haven't given, wasn't given the gift of faith. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is people don't want to give up their sin, which the Bible condemns. And whenever you get sick of your sins, whenever you, uh, you'll want to turn from yourself and the things of this world and from religion and from everything the Bible condemns and turn to Christ, then you'll have faith. You'll trust Him. It's too bad we have people who say they don't believe because they have intellectual problems. Actually, they have moral rather than intellectual problems if they would only face up to it. Sin is a real problem in the hearts of many people today. 
Even many Christians don't enjoy their salvation for that reason. Faith is that instrument of salvation. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It's not thy hope in Christ which saved you. It's Christ. And it's not thy faith in Christ that saved you, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and his work. Well, the faith of Abraham and the example of David is a wonderful lesson, I think, concerning our getting right with God and dealing with our sin. I trust the study of God's Word will bless our hearts and, and uh, help us in our Christian lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven.